On Software Engineering Daily, we have seen the improvements that software is bringing to every domain, from insurance to food engineering, from agriculture to advertising. Government is another area where the potential improvements are obvious. After all, government is often defined by an abstract set of rules, transactions, permissions, and hierarchies. Software should be perfect for improving efficiency and transparency under these structures. In this episode, we explore OpenGov, a technology that is making just these types of improvements and is working through each of the bureaucratic negotiations, the integration challenges, and the technological bottlenecks that get in the way. OpenGov provides government performance intelligence and financial transparency. Andrew Clark is an engineer at OpenGov. Andrew, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jeff. Great to be here. In order to get an idea of the problem that OpenGov is trying to solve, tell me about the technology stack that most government offices are using to look at their performance. So OpenGov, I guess, replaces kind of an amalgamation of tools, um, there are ERP systems, which frankly I'm not an expert in. Uh, I know I've, I know I'm familiar with them because we have to be familiar with them, obviously, so that we're aware of um, the problems that we're solving. But I, I'm not an expert necessarily sure, no problem. in the day to day. But I also know that a lot of the analysis work that uh, government officials do is really just pushing numbers around in Excel. Um, there are a lot of proprietary systems as well, um, or homegrown built from the ground up solutions uh, that governments use, uh, there isn't really any direct uh, analog to the kinds of services that OpenGov provides in terms of the, f- the full kind of stack of um, uh, being able to generate these really in-depth reports really quickly and place them publicly online for anyone to see. Uh, that really just doesn't exist uh, for the most part uh, in governments nowadays. Uh, unless they're using OpenGov or we have a few competitors, but really nothing quite on our on our level. Um, but yeah, it's mostly uh, like traditional ERPs or a lot of Excel stuff. Right. Okay. So we should get into more detail about what OpenGov is. What is OpenGov? So we provide, um, I mean, you give it a little bit in a nutshell. It's business and financial intelligence for governments, primarily, well, yeah, exclusively local governments right now. So anything from Washington, D.C. to uh, Palo Alto, or uh, just recently we signed my hometown in Florida, Pensacola, which is very small. Um, So we have about 500 local governments all around the U.S. right now. And um, and yeah, so uh, what what the governments will do is they will have all this financial information, all this transactional data, um, that they will upload to our systems. And uh, what we're probably most, most known for is that we will take that data and we will we, uh, put it into our system. We analyze it uh, based on this thing called a chart of accounts. Uh, and we use it to generate these really nice online reports that are interactive and anybody can log into the system or log onto a public website. Uh, any citizen can log into a public website and you can drill down into... Uh, the different things that the government has spent on uh, money on for X number of years. So uh, this is really like a qualitative leap in the interaction between citizenry and government because in in the, the previous uh, type of government technology stack doesn't have any degree of this built-in exposure to the public. Right, exactly. So th- this, is a, this is definitely a leap in terms of what's possible to do easily without having to build hire some person to build your own custom system you can just use our platform um it's uh we're trying to make it easier and easier all the time but it's uh, relative to anything that existed before it's very easy for governments to just give us uh their data and they can go in and customize how they want their reports to look and then very quickly you can have a public site uh, available for citizens to uh, look at the data. But that, that's just one service that we offer. That's how most people probably know us. Um, that was our original uh, product or offering. Uh, we're moving more uh, into more 
uh, even more cool things that we're doing in terms of not just displaying the data, but offering analysis, offering um, ways to compare data against other government entities to try and find solutions so that governments can communicate with each other and say, hey, how did you guys solve that problem? Um, I have a, I'm having a similar problem. How can I compare uh, our data to other governments' data that are similar or maybe near us geographically? Uh, and then we're also moving into things like budgeting so that uh, governments can prepare budgets and use uh insights based on all of the data that we've acquired over the years uh, and can continue to acquire. And, uh, and we have a really great team of data scientists that uh, we're just starting to uh, just, we're just really touching the, the surface of the, the really cool uh, services and offerings sure. that I think that will be okay, in, sure. in the future. So I want to get into those different things, but just to, to hammer home the, the, the initial offering that you had, um, mm-hmm. if I'm thinking about it correctly, so if I want to look at my finances, I use like mint.com or Quicken or maybe I use TurboTax to process those taxes. Uh, and, and in business, I can use QuickBooks. So is this like an equivalent system for government, like a nice UI plus transaction and analysis system? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good analogy. It's not okay. quite to mint level um, in terms of like you can start a mint account today and immediately you have – you know, you have, you can immediately start using it. It's not quite to that level. That's obviously, that's one of our goals is we wanted to make it super easy for governments to sign up and be able to immediately start using the product. Right now it's a little bit more complicated. Um, we have a really great, uh, team of, uh, a customer success team that, uh, we have, we have, and we have an onboarding process for, um, just because government finances are inherently much more complicated than, um, you, someone's personal finances. Um, you have money coming from all different sorts of, uh, funds and locations, and you have this very complicated chart of accounts describing uh, how all the money is organized and allocated. Uh, but that's that's a pretty good way of thinking of it. Is in terms of a of a Mint.com style solution. Okay, you talked about this. Uh, you know, the reason it's not quite Mint.com yet, and I think the root of that is this integration process. And uh, like, tell me about the integration process that. A government goes through as they're onboarding with OpenGov. Like on, on Software Engineering Daily, we we you know we've there we've had some shows where you know you talk about you talk to software providers and they when they're engaging with a customer, sometimes they have to go through this integration process. So tell me mm-hmm. about that. Uh, it's still a work in progress. Uh, we have a team uh, right now that's uh, and if I understand you correctly, you mean like so government signs on and they have an existing. System and they want to, we want to be able to just import their data from their system, right? Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, so that this is a an ongoing thing that we're working on. Very, it's a big focus for us right now. Um, as up till now, it's a lot of been, a lot of it's been very manual, unfortunately. Um, and so what, what they've had to do is um, just because we would get it in so many different formats, uh, every government would have a slightly different system for how they both stored their data and they had a different chart of accounts. And sometimes it was very complicated the way they did it and didn't quite fit with our system. So in the past, uh, and we're, we're still a fairly young startup, we've had, it's been a very manual process. Um, and it's been one of the struggles or one of the challenges that we've had um, in trying to reduce the amount of time from, okay, here's your data that you've just maybe, for instance, dumped to us via FTP and a bunch of files. And now let's, let's get it into a format that's usable on uh, on OpenGov, you, that can sometimes take weeks to months, depending on how responsive the government is. So integrations is a, is you. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a that's a big problem that we are uh, solving right now uh, in terms of uh, creating a system where we can integrate with the most common uh, ERPs or common um, uh, financial systems that the governments already have their data in, uh, so that it, it's. You have that mint.com like experience where you can just log in, you click a button to or to fill out a form to log into some external service, and we can just directly import it into our system. So that's it's not something that is totally fleshed out yet, but it's definitely it's one of our top areas of focus right now. Yeah, when I was reading about OpenGov, I was like, okay, this is awesome, but the this this is what stuck out of, out at me as the most uh, trying. Thing that well, that's that sound like the most difficult part. Like certainly, you know, the, there's challenges to making the Mint.com gorgeous UI um, and importing the CSV and dealing with data integrity and stuff. But 
the 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 problem that I think about that sounds really challenging is just like interacting with government people who may not be super tech savvy. They may not really be, uh, you know, you may not be dealing with somebody that's super motivated, um, you know, and you're maybe you're dealing with stuff like FTP, like you said. Um, so, I mean, what, what, so what are the big challenges? Like, am I correct in, in thinking that this is actually like the really, really hardest part is this, uh, this, this interrelation, um, this interrelation hurdle? Yeah, I think that, that is very, that's a very good assessment of it. Um, I'm there, so I'm a mostly front end guy. So what I deal with most of the time is, so if, if I'm not offering enough detail, I apologize. Um, but, uh, yeah, we have kind of two separate challenges. One, there's just like make the nice web software application, make it very user friendly, make it so that, you know, the fire chief can submit a budget proposal without pulling his hair out and having to learn about Excel and all of these crazy terms. <laughs> there's that challenge, right? Which we're, which we, I think we do, we're doing a very good job at and we can continue to do better. Uh, and that's where my focus is most of the time. And then there's this other challenge that you mentioned where, yeah, we're dealing with really, really complicated um, data sets. And we're dealing with a huge variety of sources of varying qualities of, of data. Um, and it's large, large, large amounts of data that we're getting from them as well. And we need to be able to um, not only, you know, analyze that data, but just simply acquire it in a way that's not uh, super burdensome. And we don't have to uh, have this giant army of customer service, uh, customer success people like constantly uh, you know, taking months to onboard of our customers. So the, yeah, that's definitely a huge challenge. We have about 20-ish engineers right now. And I'd say like maybe half of them are dealing with either um, uh, the, the data analysis and the data science and the uh, just the data management part of it. And then also we have a team that's dealing with the, with the integration stuff, like you said. So yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a very big challenge. I mean, it's it, it, it's really interesting this this question of like, um, you know, how much of the work do you offload? Do you try to offload to technology, and how much of the work do you try to offload to customer service? Um, I did an interview with uh, the the co-founder of DigitalOcean, and he was talking about how the biggest component of DigitalOcean is their customer service team, and I, I probably Amazon would say something similar, where like that's part of how they succeed is they augment. Well, they maybe they they would say they would augment their technology with people, with more and more people. But it sounds like um, you guys are really trying to figure out a way to minimize the amount of uh, of legwork that um, the integration specialists have to do. Or, I mean, obviously, that you know, like you said, this is not your specialty, and I don't want to be, um, you know. No, no, no. It's a, this is these are great questions. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. It's not that we want to get rid of our customer success team. I think that's a huge strength of our companies. We have an amazing customer success team. But obviously, if it takes, if we have sign up times, or if um, if the time from signing a contract to public site is several months long, you know, why can't that be like maybe a week long or a few days long? Mm-hmm. It's obviously a, a huge goal for us to get that down as small as possible in order so we can continue to grow as a company mm-hmm. uh, and focus on, on uh, new problems rather than having to spend a bunch of time mired in uh, this month-long process of, okay, did you get your chart of accounts to us yet? Or, uh, hey, this isn't quite <laughs> right. Hey, can you get the data to us? And yeah. um, especially like with governments, you can imagine they're not always – depending on the government, we, it's sometimes hard to get a response from someone. You have personnel changes. you know. But from the time you sign the contracts to nine months later, you can have a whole different set of people that you're talking to over there. Um, so the, whatever we can do to minimize that time from contract sign to usable product mm-hmm. um, is obviously good for both the governments themselves and for uh, Go- OpenGov as a company. Is there any degree of standardization between the data formats that different governments have? Uh, as far as I know, no, and that's one of the problems. I think we've discussed, um, and I don't know a ton of the details, we have discussed p- perhaps um, being part of a the, an effort to create some sort of data mm-hmm. standard, particularly for uh, not just for financial data, but for... Um, for you know, we we also deal in non-financial data like uh, government statistics, like um, you know, like car accidents. Per uh, I'm pulling stuff out of my butt here, but um, you know, non-financial uh, 
data that we want to, uh, people to be able to provide to people as well. Um, it, we have a data science team that I know has uh, worked really hard to come up with ways to ingest this data and put it into our system. And we have a, we have a really large, maybe the largest of its kind, um, repository of lots and lots of really useful information that we've pulled from census data and all other kinds of sources. Oh. Um, and there really isn't... Um, at least to my knowledge, there isn't any uh, great standard for that stuff. Um, I know we've just—I think we've discussed um, an effort to maybe provide or help create some sort of standard like that. Um, and then also, uh, there, I've mentioned this a few times, but there's this thing called a chart of accounts. I know another thing we've we've considered doing um, is a chart of accounts is essentially a uh, a tree-like structure that describes how. Um, money in an organization is allocated to different uh, accounts and how those accounts relate to each other in terms of departments and funds and in, in this tree-like structure. Um, another thing we've discussed to try and make this a little bit easier for um, for people is uh, we, we see all sorts of chart of accounts, some of them effective, some of them less so effective. And so at this point, we have a lot of expertise at the company for what makes a good government chart of accounts. And so we've discussed perhaps um, something along the lines of providing a um, kind of a go, an OpenGov uh, standard for this is how an OpenGov specification for this is how a chart of accounts should look. Sure. Or, or maybe even like we can create one automatically for government uh, using uh, all the stuff that we've learned from previous from previous governments. Sure. Okay. So we could talk about the the higher level product stuff and the um, you know domain specific engineering aspects, but I think we should we should get into more general engineering topics since this is software engineering daily. So mm-hmm. um, to start, when when a when a client comes online, when an open gov uh, client you know buys a contract uh, and their site gets spun up, what is going on in the back end? What kinds of technologies are you guys using? So on the back end, we're using Postgres and um, a lot of Rails right now. Um, it uh, we have we have several different components. It's it's been interesting. Um, before I was there, because uh, we also have we also have a very critical component of our app right now that's written in Node. Uh, interestingly, uh, I think at the beginning uh, we. It, it kind of ha- happens, and this probably happens to a lot of different startups, where we had this one, this one component that kind of dealt with everything. It did the, the front-end Rails views. Uh, it did um, several different uh, data. We had several different databases and several several different concerns that were all the monolith, giant monolith, exactly. Um, and then, and I'm not sure the exact timeline of how this happened, but eventually we we started breaking these things up into microservices, right? So now we just have like a separate repo and a separate project for every single little thing at, at the company. Every single little piece of our of our front end app was in this separate repo with separate people working on it. So we have like a, a transparency app. We have a, a reports app. We have a, um, a, a data uploading app. And so we kind of went the opposite extreme where we, everything just got siloed into different parts. Um, and then now we're kind of going back towards more of a maybe not a monolith, but we've, we're kind of reacting against that because uh, it got very complicated. If uh, it's the idea of microservices is nice, but sometimes when you have things in a bunch of different separate repos, it makes it really hard. Especially um, for instance, we had a bunch of different front end repos, even though they're all being used combined together in. Uh, when they were deployed, they were all being combined together into like a what was supposed to be like a unified experience. We had like you know three or four different front end servers that we'd have to deploy um, every time we went to deploy. We'd have to deal with you know it just became this versioning kind of nightmare, uh, and um, it, we kind of experienced the other end of the spectrum in terms of <laughs> splitting things up too much. So now we're going back to this. Um, I think a much more uh, where we've started to move towards uh, a saner approach where. A lot of our rail. It also helps that we've kind of solidified on our software stack. So now, almost all of our backend stuff, or for the most part, the the critical stuff is written in Rails, um, at least for now. And then all of our front end stuff is a React, Babel, Redux, Relay kind of stack. And so we have one repo um, that does does our Rails stuff, 
um, rather than two or three. And we have one step uh, repo now. It's not quite there, but we're moving everything into this one repo for all of our front end um, React stuff. But we, we even have some backbone and jQuery stuff in there in there as well. And um, yeah, but we also we also have so for the integrations team. I know they use Python a lot. Uh, the data science team uses Python as well. Um, we still have this this kind of legacy node thing that we're uh, going to replace um, with. I believe it's with uh, Rails and uh, Postgres. Um, but yeah. Okay. Uh, so 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 it's it's really interesting hearing this uh, vacillation between monolith to microservice back to monolith or <laughs> yeah, back yeah. to somewhere in between monolith and microservice was there i mean do you do you think it was a was there a mistake involved or was it more just like it looked like a good idea at the time and then uh and then oops something changed or i think it's just it's more of a looked like a good idea at the time and and thing yeah maybe a little bit of both how, how many yeah, how I, many people were were in the organization when you when you went from monolith to microservices it's hard to say. Uh, I just I actually just joined, just for some context, I joined last May. And when I joined, I think there were about 15 engineers. Mm. So so it wasn't that many, I guess, probably when that we went from monolith to microservice. Because by, by the time I joined, people were already starting to have this microservices fatigue. <laughs> um, and I know I definitely did when I, because the first week I started, you know, I'm like, okay, how do I get, how do I start pushing code? I'd, I'd have to like like well, it's a twenty step process. Yeah, you gotta like <laughs> pull down like these five different repos, and okay, which ones do I actually need? Which ones can I not pull down? Oh no! And I gotta start up like which port does this thing run on? And uh, it's like, or you can use the Chef Cookbook, which takes forever to configure. And um, see, so yeah, it, it, not only was it a pain for like deployment, but just for onboarding people, it became kind of uh, very hard to. I mean, we still kind of have this problem, but it's get definitely getting better. Where it's hard for people who just start to get a grip on exactly all the different parts of the stack. Whereas now, hopefully, going forward, when we have this one front end repo, um, it'll be just a matter of pull down the front end repo. Uh, if uh, you're not connecting to the our, you know, our testing server and you want to do it locally, then pull down this back end repo. Those are, at max, you'll have two things running, and that's it. And there shouldn't be like a whole. You shouldn't have to learn the every single part of the stack in order just to get a basic development server up. Ooh, man, that microservice fatigue, that sounds tough. I, I, I did an interview with um, the chief architect of Uber, and he talked about microservice fatigue and talked about the motivation for whether you should move to microservices or not. And he, it was interesting because it, it sounded like it wasn't... Um, you know, he he. If I remember correctly, it was more he he would advocate microservices being ba- the reason I asked about the the team size is he would advocate it being based more um, on your <clears throat> your team size and 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 how the org is changing rather than having to do with something about this this you know how complex your architecture is. Um, obviously, that's not there's not like there's no one size fits all rule set of rules for microservices but maybe if you have an extremely small team um and you have a monolith and the monolith is kind of like uh crufty and and hard to deal with that's maybe still okay because maybe that's better than having a really complicated deployment and commit process right and i guess there's there's several components of it one one advantage of having a monolith aside from the there's the deployment part there's also just the having one repo part that's really nice. Uh, they're kind of they're not exactly the same thing, monolith versus one repo, but uh, it's nice to only have uh, not to have to manage like version conflicts between two different things. Um, there's the I guess just the cognitive. So just to give you a front end example, this is kind of a, a maybe a slightly trivial example, but you know if we have multiple different front end apps. And I have a single component that I want to share again that I want to, you know, I wrote it for this app, but maybe I want to use it in this other app. Well, so the way we solved that was, okay, we'll just have like a component library that lives like in a separate repo. I was like, well, now I got to update in order to get anything to, in order to use this component, I've got to update like three different repos 
uh, and open three separate PRs and <laughs> test it three separate times and hope they all go out at the same time just to just to use this one simple little component. Um, and so what ends up happening is, oh, screw that. I'm just going to not make it reusable and just put it in this in this guy instead of trying to share oh, it. And no. so there, there, there are a bunch of different, I guess, different layers to this to this problem. Um, but I, th- I think we're moving in the right direction. Okay, interesting. So Palo Alto Gov, let's take that as an example. So, so when Palo Alto onboards with OpenGov, they get their own site spun up. Is that correct? Like, is that is it their own Rails monolith that gets spun up on on OpenGov servers, and uh, and then now I can go to paloaltogov.com or whatever it's called. Is that how it works? Um, we don't spin up extra servers. Like, you don't have like a dedicated server. Um, oh, okay, it's all running on our. On our system, you do get your own website, like you, or you get your own URL, right? Like okay. But no, it it all it all runs on the same on the same set of servers. Ah, okay. So is it the same Rails application that that people are are accessing? Yeah, it's the same. It's the same Rails application. Ah, okay. Yeah. I see. Um, so are, are you using AWS? Yes. Yes, we're completely on AWS. Interesting. Okay. Cool. So um, we should talk more about the front end since you are basically a front end developer you focus mostly on mm-hmm. the front end um yeah. so you know you've talked about the uh you know it started out as um i, th- I think you rails you said rails and uh well you said postgres obviously but um was and i know you mentioned backbone so i'm guessing the backbone was there before the react is that correct so again uh, i might get the timeline a little bit wrong but i believe the the way it went was we had um, and there's some overlap as well because we have different teams of different people working on front end stuff at the same time. So in the beginning, it was Rails, and then we added some jQuery in. So we still have like some very critical components of our app that are still written in this amalgamation of like a Rails, Rails views plus some jQuery sprinkled on top. Um, and then uh, we move after that. We uh, we experimented with Backbone a bit. So I don't think we really use Backbone for that much anymore. We have okay. uh, we have a React app where we're we're using Backbone models. Okay. Um, but I don't think we stayed on Backbone for that long. Um, and then now, pretty much everything for the last maybe year and a half has been uh, a React and Flux app. Okay, great. Um, so, but but there's still there is still uh, like so the data science team has an app that they came out with recently that is still written in jQuery. Um, just because it has been in progress for a while and it hadn't, it, it never made the leap to React. But yeah, we ha- we we uh, have, but ma- mainly centered around React uh, going forward. But we still do have some legacy stuff that's written in jQuery. Mm, okay, so according to your Twitter account, you are quote currently living in React slash JavaScript slash Node land. Mm-hmm. How 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 does that? How does that land contrast with other software development paradigms you have worked in? Uh, well, well, okay. So I, this is actually my first job, <laughs> my first software engineering job I've ever had. So I can't say I have a ton of experience in other uh, stacks. Well, certainly um, you worked. You know, you did programming at in college or whatever high school before that. So. Uh yeah. Um. So could you repeat the question real quick? Sorry. So so I'm just curious, like. How how does your experience, how does your workflow compare to other software development paradigms that you've worked in when you're using React and JavaScript and Node? Uh, my workflow, I guess. Um, or is this all you've ever worked in, literally? This isn't literally all I've ever worked in, but in terms of like actual, like on a team, day-to-day, certainly being paid for it, software development, This is uh, I've always done web stuff. Um, so I guess if I compare what I'm doing now to maybe what I was doing on the web like two or three years ago, um, where I used to, I used to do like maybe contract work or before I was like a proper programmer, I would do like you know WordPress sites for people, or um, before I had this job I had like a job at, at a um, digital agency where we would uh, make kind of marketing sites and um, branding sites for people, so. And then, and then I've all, I've done and I've made an iOS app before. Uh, I'm not sure if I could quite compare that experience to this because <laughs> it was like a, I mean, that was literally the first piece of software I ever wrote and it was really fun, but it's not, it's not quite the same thing. Cause it's more like late nights of caffeine fueled coding versus, 
not that there's no late nights here, but uh, it's more, you know, like a, a more proper professional environment. Um, well, so maybe, I, guess, I mean, one, one, one thing that's interesting, I, maybe this, this relates to you, maybe it doesn't, um, but, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had a conversation recently um, about uh, object-oriented programming, and, and uh, the, the person I was talking to was a, oh, Brian Kernahan, that's who it was. Um, his, okay. his show is, is going to air soon. He's, um, he's, he's been around for a long time, and he said that, uh, you know, he's, he, he, he wrote a, a book on C, like K&R. It's a pretty famous book, but he, he said that, um, you know, his understanding of object orientation, for example, is very rooted in his understanding of, of C and Java and how object orientation works in those and therefore, he doesn't have much of an understanding of how the JavaScript object orientation model works. Whereas mm-hmm. I have met younger people, um, you know, 20, 21, 19 or whatever, all their work has been in JavaScript. And their notion of how object orientation works is totally based on the prototype model. So right. I'm, I'm curious if that resonates with you at all. Like, or do you, do you even think about object orientation as a, as a JavaScript programmer? Um, okay, I, I kind of see where your question's coming from. Maybe now, uh, that's 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 interesting because the first language I ever scripted in was JavaScript or coded in was JavaScript, like just little silly web page scripts. Um, but the first proper language I ever learned in college was Java, which is very um, much the classical uh, object oriented uh, mm-hmm. pattern. Yeah. And then the very first, like I said, the very first kind of software project I ever completed and like released was an iOS app where Objective-C is also a very, um, very much on the opposite end of the spectrum from JavaScript in terms of like, this is very strict, um, for the most part, uh, like class-based object-oriented programming. Sure. When it comes to JavaScript, I've never really been one to like take advantage of the prototype chain or like make... uh, it's never been like a huge part of the way I've coded. Maybe when I was like ma- making like jQuery plugins and stuff. But I've, the thing I've always liked about JavaScript is not so much the prototypes or the object-oriented side, but the other kind of half of JavaScript, which is um, closures and lambdas and uh, functions and kind of the more functional side of uh, dynamic side of JavaScript. And that, that's the wrong word, but the, <laughs> yeah, the, the more functional side of JavaScript. Uh, has always been the thing that's attracted me, especially since I've been using React because that um, clearly gels with those concepts really well. Um, so when, when most of the code I write nowadays that's in JavaScript looks very, um, maybe too much sometimes because I have like Elm Envy, but it looks very, uh, a lot more functional versus object-oriented. I Unless I have to, I rarely am uh, adding things to a prototype chain or, uh, using, even like using the new operator. I, uh, for the most part, I, the code that I write tends to stick to the more functional paradigm. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, Elm Envy, interesting. Okay. So many developers talk about Elm and Ohm as being languages that are maybe leading indicators of where React might go or where programming in general might go, and I think you've talked about this a bit. So, what is it about Elm and Ohm that are so appealing? Um, well, I think I, I would agree with that that statement that they're kind of leading indicators. Um, I I, um, I haven't written a ton of stuff in Elm or Ohm or, clo- or closure script, I should say. Um, but they, I've I've just kind of done side little playground things. Um, but they're fascinating to me because. Um, they, all the things that I like about that, like were really like epiphany moments for me when I started using react, um, are just like, that was like, it's almost like that was a taste. If you want the, if you want to go to the promised land, then you use closure script or you use Elm, which in my day to day work, is not likely anytime soon for many various reasons, (laughs) practical reasons, um, just hiring reasons uh and it's totally fine because i for the most part i actually enjoy writing in javascript a lot i'm not a person who hates javascript um i have a mostly very pleasant time writing it um but i really like um maybe just because i uh it's also just i i'm i still consider myself very very young naive and experienced programmer uh, i'm constantly wanting to learn new things and uh this this uh these more purely functional programming languages um like elm really excite me because they uh, just 
they have all these concepts which I've only gotten to dabble in with JavaScript, but uh, look really cool. Like I, I really like uh, the idea of strong types. I know that's like a contentious thing uh, for a lot of people, but it's one of the things I really miss. I didn't really like Objective-C, but I really missed having types in Objective-C or in Java. And um, just playing around with the type system in uh, Elm, or I've, I've dabbled a little bit in like Haskell a little bit as well, too. Uh, I think that's a really cool component of where, where do that. you find types helping you out? Is it at like when you're working the IDE, or is it at compile time, or what exactly? Um, both. I mean, so just in again, I'm not an expert in this stuff, but it's just my impression that if you're writing, if you're trying trying your best to write, uh, and I'm thinking in the context of like re- creating UIs or creating uh, front end applications, if you're doing your best to you know follow best practices and keep your UI code very pure and try and uh, push your side effects and your um, and th- that type of stuff into these uh, into these separate areas and keep your UI code very pure and predictable and testable. Um, if you're already writing code like that, which I try to, then adding static types just gives you an, this, this extra level of clarity and uh, certainty that or that your code isn't going to do crazy crashy things at uh, at runtime. So just for, maybe for a brief example, uh, you know, JavaScript doesn't have static typing, but they, ha- they have, we have things like TypeScript and Flow. So we started adding, I, we started adding Flow to, uh, do I need to explain what Flow is or do you think most uh, people want to know? You could put two words on it. I, I, okay. I know what it is. Yeah. So it's a, an incremental static typing, uh, kind of like TypeScript, but it's, it's provided by Facebook and um, it's, uh, uh, it's not really. I can't say it's popular, but it's uh, has some, I guess, usage in the React and the React community. Um, uh, yeah, you just you just add these incremental type annotations to your JavaScript files, and you run a, a flow server, and it just checks to make sure everything um, type checks properly. By so incremental, not, you mean optional? Yeah, optional, and not nearly as it's not. It's nothing on the level of the very strict algebraic data types that Elm provides. Um, but uh, but it's better than nothing, I guess. So uh, we at least for something. So we, we've we've added started to add flow types to several of our modules in, in our app, and even beyond just I'm not sure how many errors it's caught. Um, I do like it when I'm coding because uh, you know sometimes you make a silly mistake and uh, you return the wrong thing. I feel like it probably does catch some things like that. But really, I just like it for the self documenting part of it like i don't sure. have to use just i don't have to go just by like the variable name to try and figure out what what this is this an id or is this the object itself um mm. we, we have several like uh kind of uh we have several modules in our in our app that have to deal with you know traversing these tree-like structures uh, it's like the coa again and uh i was reviewing someone else's code in this by no fault of their own because it's just inherently kind of complex logic that's going on that's very crucial to how our product works um it was just very hard to follow because it was just a bunch of variable names and it was uh there were there were comments but it was sometimes even just describing things in words isn't always the best way to communicate what's happening <laughs> um but we, we went in there we put some flow types in and it made it much much easier to figure out what was going on because we could mm. see exactly which which objects and which pieces were being passed around to different parts of the different functions mm. yeah it's interesting this this trade-off between the incremental or optional type system and the more oppressive, uh, or maybe oppressive is the wrong word, but the, no, I, yeah. <laughs> the, the Elm type system or Haskell type system, whatever, you know, forcing you to type it. Um, you know, yeah. there's, there's the question of, you know, if, if, if you're going to use a type system, why wouldn't you use it everywhere? But maybe you don't want to use it everywhere. Yeah. Um, I have to say, like I'm maybe it's just a temperament thing or a matter of preference. Um, I am the type of person who probably would I I kind of would want to be forced to type put types everywhere. Mm. Like that's that's just kind of who I am. I guess it just gives me a nice feel fuzzy feeling. Um, maybe cause I, I mean I liked math a lot in school. Maybe people who are more math inclined like you're types responsible. Have you ever gotten a speeding ticket? I, I oh I got out of it, but I did get a speeding ticket. I don't you're... think it's a responsible thing either because I'm not the most responsible person. 
but yeah, I just like I just like the the idea that everything fits together and the the compiler can to make all of these can check all these things for me without me having to like cross my fingers and hope it works. Mm-hmm. I like letting the compiler do as much work as, as possible. But I I can see how it can be. Some people feel that it's like constricting or limiting, and you just want to code and you don't want to. You, you you know what you're doing. You don't want the compiler to be yelling at you mm-hmm. um, all the time or having to do your homework. I guess by by documenting exactly what types you're using. Okay, so um, so flow. I mean, we talked about flow at this point, but there's also, I mean, on Software Engineering Daily, we've done a bunch of shows about React. We've done a bunch of shows on like the suite of technologies developed by Facebook and developed by the open source that a community that are kind of related to React, like GraphQL, like you mentioned mm-hmm. Flow. When you're working with these tools and I don't know how many of them you work with, do you think of them explicitly as a front-end framework or is there something deeper to it? Is there is there like a broader paradigm shift in how we are thinking about application development? Um, I don't know because I don't really think, I mean, I definitely am mostly a front-end programmer, but I, I don't guess I don't think of myself that way. Um, so I guess GraphQL is a good example. We, we're using like a GraphQL relay wrapper around our legacy REST APIs right now. Um, it's actually, yeah, we, we started doing that for, um, recently for one of our apps and, um, and that sounds super interesting. Can we, can we deviate and talk about that? Oh yeah. Yeah. We can talk about that. Um, if I can just finish this up. Sure, sure, Um, sure. I guess if I had to, because I, I think you're, I wish I had a better way to answer this, but I, f- I feel like that question was really good. Um, yeah, I, I consider like Flow, Graph, GraphQL, and, GraphQL and React especially are, are um, they are very similar. I'm trying to articulate how, but um, they... I mean, is the idea of the front-end programmer, is that being like sublimated into the idea of the middle tier application developer? I think probably. Um, well, maybe another way to think of it is that like, if you write an iOS, like if you make iOS apps or Mac apps or windows apps for a living, like you don't really call yourself a front end developer. Right. Mm. But that's, but if you're a web app, if you're making web apps, there's still sometimes this distinction between, Oh, you're a front end developer. So and sometimes there's that negative connotation that comes along with it. But really, yes. I think front-end developers are just becoming like app developers that happen to be rendering to the browser versus, uh, you know, uh, an iOS app or an mm. Android app. So, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I never feel, uh, I don't know, embarrassed to tell people I'm a front-end developer. Um, and I think you're right. I think it is maybe evolving more towards a. Um, instead of being like a front end thing and a back end thing, it's, there's like this middle area um, where, yeah, maybe that middle area is just calling it just straight up app development rather than front end web developer. Yeah. Or the, um, you know, the unicorn full stack developer as so many job listings call it. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. But you mentioned this GraphQL wrapper around your legacy rest APIs and, mm-hmm. um, we did a show about GraphQL and it'd be great to hear about how you are using it in the wild. Um, I don't think we're using it totally differently from how other people have started using it, but like, so we have this legacy, these legacy rest APIs. Um, this is actually kind of a little bit of a point of contention, which I might get into, but, uh, we have these legacy rest APIs. We started making this app last, I guess it was in August. We started making this new app, which is very important to, the future of the company, like strategically important, and we're gonna have to, we're gonna be maintaining it for many years. So we were trying to make, and we and we had kind of a chance to start from, not nothing because we still have our existing other services that we're integrating with, but we had a chance to like, uh, at the beginning, really try and get it right, um, uh, architecturally and technically. Since in the past we've had these problems of constantly changing stacks and constantly changing technologies, uh, different flux frameworks and all that type of stuff. So we started with like a, using Redux, which is a flux framework to, to fetch, um, to do all of our data fetching uh, in the beginning. And we had kind of our eye on maybe a Falcor or a Relay because those were at the time just starting to be open source and released and people were using them. Um, but when we first started this app, they weren't technically 
like publicly available. So we, we, we started just doing uh, a Redux app and we kind of got into the same problems that I personally have always had with any kind of Flux type of system for data fetching, which is that I feel like Flux is pretty good and Redux is really good for like application local type of state and application level state. When it comes to like data fetching, it's just always just felt hacky to me because you have these <laughs> You have these stores, or you have this store with these reducers, and you know it's pretty straightforward to fetch it in there. But then you got to add things like caching, or what if you want to do pagination? What if <laughs> what if you want to deal with like overfetching and so on? I saw Relay last year. I was like, aha, that's exactly yes, that's exactly the t- type of thing that I that I want. So eventually, we were like, okay, we really need, we really want to use Relay because uh, it solves all these problems that we keep having to solve over and over and over again. Um, but we have we don't have a GraphQL backend. We have a REST backend, and so um, I don't think this is that unique of a solution. I feel like I think other people have, have done this as well. Mm. Uh, so the solution we had was okay. We'll just we'll we'll have we have these node servers anyway that um, are just kind of serving as these these front end serving. They, they're very lightweight and they just serve our front end stuff. Um, why don't we just put like a, a GraphQL wrapper around our REST APIs? And so we're talking to this GraphQL server, and as an implementation detail of how the GraphQL schema is set up, it's ca- making the whatever REST calls. But our, our client doesn't need to know about that. It's just consuming GraphQL. Um, so that's what we did, and I th- it's actually worked out well. There was some contention from the, um, the back-end guys um, really worried that we were adding this other confusing layer in between, um, uh, we probably could have probably could have been some better communication between the front end teams and the and the architecture back end teams about um, why why we made that decision. Mm-hmm. I personally think it was the right, still think it was the right decision to make. I know there's some people who are still questioning whether or not uh, the trade off is worth it. Um, but I'm just such a huge fan of GraphQL and and also Relay that uh, it's been a, an amazing way for us to to be able to focus on product development without having to constantly uh, rethink or re-solve all these caching and pagination and uh, really gross problems that we yeah. always inevitably ended up having in these in our, these Flux-type apps. But yeah, if, if you want to know specifically how this, this REST wrapper worked, it's, it's really not that complicated. So the nice thing about GraphQL when you're creating the schema is that it's, very, it's completely agnostic to what kind of data backend that you have so you have these uh you have this schema and you have these fields in this in uh that correspond to this schema and for each field you get a resolve function and that resolve function returns uh data for that field either synchronously or asynchronously so in those resolve functions uh rather than you know fetching from a directly from a database we just fetch from a graph from a rest endpoint and that's pretty much it Great. Yeah, that makes makes complete sense. That's that was an awesome explanation. So um, I want to I want to talk about your um, upcoming talk at uh, React JS Conf in in February. It's called your talk is called Back to React, and mm-hmm. um, and I guess I should take a moment to to thank um, the React JS Conf because they gave me a ticket and I'll be there. Oh, just, awesome! Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, so I'll be reporting, I guess. Um, but uh, what are the topics that you're covering in in that talk? Back to React. So the talk, and I haven't written it yet, but but the uh, <laughs> putting I, I you started, on the spot. Yeah, I started outlining it, and it's because uh, I, I submitted two proposals, and this is the one. I'm glad they picked this one because this is the one I liked more. Um, but it, it has a lot to do with some of the things we were talking about uh, earlier in this talk. Um, I'm really interested, and I think a lot of people are really interested in what I, what I like to call these kind of post-React libraries slash architectures slash languages um, that have uh, kind of emerged since React has come onto the scene. Because I think whether you're a React user or not, if you're using Angular, Ember, or Ohm, or Cycle, or um, Elm in the Elm architecture, uh, it's kind of un- inarguable that React... It, and its uh, virtual DARM architecture and its component-based architecture and this declarative view um, pattern has kind of changed the way that UIs are built um, for the web and even now with React Native and stuff like that, even probably for UIs anywhere uh, on any platform. And uh, I'm super interested in these post-React uh, libraries and languages like Elm, like Ohm, 
Um, but I can't necessarily, it doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to use them, uh, again, for like various practical reasons or, uh, you know, I, I want to use relay and I don't, I don't want to give up relay. So maybe that's not enough for me to, uh, it's not like the static typing of Elm for instance might not be enough for me to give up relay. I still want to be part of the react community, but I, I look at the like Elm and Elm and these other libraries and frameworks with this, this envy, um, and I also feel like there's some really valuable things that we can learn from these more functional, these more purely functional libraries and uh, and frameworks. Uh, and, and the idea of this talk is I want to show how some of the like the key insights that I've taken from uh, from these post React frameworks, uh, how we can apply that to React today, um, and how we can use those ideas to make our current React applications better. Um, without having to actually give up React, mm. and so one of the effects of this uh, this React paradigm that you're, I think you're kind of hinting at, you know, you've you've said that Ember and Angular have pivoted in the wake of React's two big innovations, which are the declarative component model and the unidirectional data flow. What are the ways in which Ember and Angular have have pivoted? So um, I believe if Again, I'm I'm not an expert in either Ember or Angular. I've just read, kind of read through the sure. um, through the descriptions of of both of the new. There's there's uh, Ember, whatever version it is, Ember two. They have a new Glimmer engine, and then Angular two uh, also has, is post React. So a- Ember's Glimmer engine, as far as I can tell, is a pretty straightforward, um, not copy, but uh, pretty straightforward implementation of the same kind of idea that React uses in terms of. Um, how uh, it's, it's a component model where uh, data flows one way. If you even look at the the life, kind of the their version of the lifecycle methods, they have this table. Um, I wish I remembered where this was, but they have this table like saying, "Here's the name of the lifecycle method in React. Here's what it corresponds to in Ember." It's a very, I mean, and they're very open about it. It's a very straightforward uh, kind of port, maybe you could say, or direct in, directly inspired by uh, React's component model. I think is really cool that uh, that all these frameworks are able to learn from each other and um, and move towards these these better architectures. Angular, I don't think they've quite moved to a Glimmer style or VDOM style um, component architecture quite yet. But it does. It, at least my impression is that it does seem like they have adopted uh, the unidirectional part, um, where there's less emphasis on this, on two way data binding uh, and it's more on uh, on you give a view some data and it composes another view which gets data and it goes in one direction. Mm. Um, I'm not a huge expert on that, but uh, but at least that, that's my impression from having read about um, Angular two and like blog posts and stuff. So okay, so shifting the conversation back to OpenGov and back to large scale application development. Now that we've touched on React a bit, I imagine that as you're building this OpenGov platform, you know you've got, for example, you've got these three big products, you've got OpenGov Intelligence, you've got OpenGov Comparisons, and OpenGov Transparency. I imagine there will be more in the future. And as you're building them, I imagine that you want your React components that you're using in one to be reusable in another. If, if, if is, that, is that assumption correct? Yeah, yeah. So, so what are the challenges to building the components in a properly modular way where they're reusable and composable? So, yeah, this is this is a challenge, and it's something that's been hampered in the past by that uh, by that problem I described earlier, where we had like many different repos for our front end stuff. Um, so now we just have one repo, which we started migrating everything over to, and it's started to improve the problem. Um, I think I also mentioned that we had this separate library library we call it um, Ovid, which is just a component library that we have. Um, for all of our uh, mostly user interface components. That's not the only type of component we like to share, but um, it's the most, I guess, maybe the most obvious type is, is just user interface components. We want to have a nice, consistent interface uh, across all of our products. Um, and so we have like a very basic version of, of what a lot of companies have, which is a component library, where um, you have these, these base set of components for like buttons and forms and uh, sidebars and stuff like that. And if you want to make uh, a change to one of those, you want to add a new one, you add it to this component library first. That way, any app can benefit from the from either the enhancement you made to an existing component or a new component. Um, so we, we do have something like that. Uh, again, it's been 
the potential of that concept has been hampered in the past by the idea that we had like five different repos and every time we wanted to update that component library, <laughs> we had to make sure we bumped the version on every single repo. Um, but uh, yeah, we haven't totally nailed it. Uh, I know that companies like Facebook, I know have like really cool, really cool versions of this concept that even like they have backend versions of this as well. And they have, I've seen it. You can like search through the thousands of components that they've written. Uh, we were nowhere close to something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but, but um, beyond just UI components, we also have like uh, more um, functional, not like, not like functional paradigm functional, but like more functional uh, pieces that we like to share uh, across um, different apps as well. And that's be become a lot easier because we have just this one repo. Um, we don't have to deal with that versioning problem of having to bump an, an external project every time uh, we add a component. And then we, we also have, um, a, going completely away from, from React components or uh, any kind of UI component, we also have... Um, you know these these shared uh, modules. So that that module I was talking to you about earlier that uh, deals with chart of account tree manipulation. Um, it turns out, turns out that that code that I was I was writing with uh, with my coworker a few weeks ago or a few months ago, um, that was kind of hard for me to piece together until we added the static types. Which it turns out that the code we were writing then has been written. By basically every team at the company for <laughs> for as long as the company has existed. Oh no way! Because it's very it's very crucial to how our app how our product works, and almost every repo backing their front end has some version of that code, and it's a thing where it's it can't live in, it can't just live in one place because we can't afford a round trip every time we need to calculate this thing. So it needs to live on the front end and the back end, uh, and it needs to be like in Python and Ruby because we have both types of projects. And uh, previously, when it's been done in another app, because when we were trying to figure this out, uh, we talked to these other engineers, and he showed us his version of it. But it was like entangled in this jQuery mess, and it wasn't quite extracted properly so that we could actually use it. So obviously, this is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Again, exacerbated by the by the fact that we had these different teams working on different apps with different stacks. Um, but now that we're in this, I keep going back to this idea. But now that we're in this one unified front-end architecture, um, when, when we, re when we, and another funny thing is while we were talking about this, uh, the guy that sits across from me, um, <laughs> the guy that sits across from me, Gerdas, uh, was kind of overheard what we were talking about. And he's like, guys, come over here and look at this. And we go to his screen and we're looking at basically the exact same function that he's working on at the same time. <laughs> so, so, uh, so yeah, that's a, that's another problem that we're fixing. So now we have, we actually do have in our repo, we have a, a single file. It doesn't have everything in there, but we have a single module, multiple modules that have these common functions, and we're going to try and do a much better job of keeping these in one place, writing some really good tests and documentation around it. And then we've even talked about maybe finding some sort of language that we can cross-compile to both, um, you know, a back-end library and, a, and a, also a front-end JavaScript library. That way we can maybe even share it across, um, across back-end and front-end. We haven't done that yet, but we, we've talked about it. Okay, the the microservice monolith stuff rears its head again. That's super interesting. Um, okay, so you know I want to close off with just uh, you know circling back to to OpenGov because you know most of this conversation centered around the discussion of the engineering and React and stuff, but uh, and even the the integration discussion. Um, but I, I want to get back to the high level just to close off and get an idea for what is the what are the future products that OpenGov wants to build, and what is the big vision of OpenGov? Well, I'm not sure I'm, al I'm really allowed to tell you sp oh. specific products we're working on. I can tell you, because I've already kind of mentioned it, I think I'm allowed to tell you that um, the product I've been working on for the last few months is a budgeting product. So, cause, uh, so this will move us more towards that mint.com style model that we were talking about. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that because uh, it's in it's in alpha release right now. So we have a few, or alpha, I don't know if it's beta or alpha, but we have a few beta customers right now that are trying it out. And we've got some really great feedback, um, and we're really excited about that. Once that's uh, available for general, once that's in general availability in the next few months, that'll probably it'll be you know one of the biggest parts of the company, um, and uh, it'll be really exciting. Um, I'm not sure I'm allowed to tell you specifically things we're working on beside beyond that, um, but it's very much in the area of I think one of the uh, 
one of the two of the big focuses this year are um, just polishing everything up and making things a lot, uh, just really bringing the user, uh, putting an extra emphasis on the user experience um, and integrations as well. So I guess those are two separate concerns, but Mm. in my mind, they're kind of similar. Um, Working on the integrations problem, like we talked at the beginning of this talk in terms of onboarding government so that we can get their data from wherever it is currently into the system really quickly so they can go from contract to usable product uh, as fast as possible. And then also just making the user flow in terms of using the app um, really nice so that uh, not so that we can get rid of our customer success team because they're a huge part of why this company is successful, but so that we, we don't have to you know, have this month long ordeal of going back and forth just to, just to get something set up for them. Right. So that's one focus. Uh, another focus is we have this amazing data science team that we've uh, that we've put together uh, in the last year, particularly or, or the last few months, frankly, particularly uh, that is going to start uh, infusing uh, data science into every single part of the application. So, for instance, if you're in the budget application, um, when you're going to make a new proposal for next year's budget, um, you know we can put inf- we can like put information right next to you, suggesting, hey, this is what. Um, maybe other governments near you are doing with uh, with this uh, money next year. Or, hey, based on your historical data, here's a suggestion for things that you might want to do next year. Um, that's one example. Um, but we have so much data right now, and we're getting more and more data all the time, that data science, I think, is going to be a really important part of how um, OpenGov's products evolve in the future as well. Well, that's, that's fantastic. And um, OpenGov is super interesting product, and I'm... Uh I feel like we could do a whole week of shows about GovTech stuff. It seems like it's exploding in popularity and uh, an actual deployability um, because I think there's probably increased uh, adoption at the government level. Um, anyway, well, Andrew, it's been super interesting talking to you. I will definitely uh, hit you up at ReactJSConf and certainly give you a Software Engineering Daily t-shirt. Oh, yeah, that'd be be awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. 